You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I come from a storytelling tradition. Uh, in fact, uh, it's clear to me now that I'm a reincarnated bard uh, of, of a Celtic uh, order uh, who uh, can teach through music. Singer, songwriter, Donovan. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The people of Scotland and Ireland have a centuries-old tradition of song, poem, and story. And in the early 1960s, a young poet, storyteller, songwriter came along and captured the imagination of millions. His name is Donovan Leach, although professionally he's always been known simply as Donovan. His more than 200 songs include some 60s classics. But in 1970, when he was still only in his mid-twenties and at the height of his career, Donovan walked away from it. And he explained why in his 2007 autobiography called (laughs) The Autobiography of Donovan. I met him and interviewed him when he appeared at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. in early 2007. Now, most of what you're going to hear is him. I don't get to ask too many questions, and there's a reason for that. I discovered a long time ago that if somebody has a lot to say, and they're really saying it well, why interrupt them with questions? Just let them speak. So there's more Donovan than me in this interview, and that's a good thing. So here now from 2007, Donovan. As a songwriter and a poet, uh, I have journals, and I'm autobiographical in many songs. So from a very early age, uh, around about 1970, when I was 24, 24, 26, 24, 26, uh, I uh, discovered a shoebox uh, of handwritten papers that my my mother had uh, kept for, for me. And um, I decided handwritten was good, and all these memories from childhood I would leave in the shoebox. But then I would quickly... Uh, make a memoir, handwritten in longhand in 1970, of my bohemian days before fame and before I forgot it. So then I wrote that handwritten piece and stuffed it into the shoebox as well. And so put the shoebox away. And then every two or three years in the 70s and into the 80s and the 90s, I would sort of pull out the pages and say, I must tell the story soon uh, at the right anniversary year uh, of this extraordinary uh, bohemian invasion of popular culture from the 40s, 50s and 60s which brought back to society meaningful lyrics, protests civil rights, ecology uh, the spiritual path and try to find the answer to the suffering in the world. As you know the 60s generation was an aching longing generation, longing for peace and longing for some answer to the madness of the two wars and a depression in the 20th century. So I'd keep bringing out the pages, Bill, keep bringing them out and saying, one day I'm going to organize this into a book. Years would pass, decades would pass. And 10, 12 years ago, 
yeah, 12 years ago now, uh, I got a call from Mark Booth, and he says, I'm a, I'm a junior editor in Random House, and I know you're writing this book. So I said, yeah. He said, is it ready? I said, no. Ten years passes. He calls again. He says, I'm senior editor of Random House. It's Mark again. I said, okay, I'm ready. And so two years ago, it was time. But it needed tidying uh, and reworking and editing and all that good stuff. But I'd studied a bit and gone on a few writer's courses to try to get some uh, idea of how to write a book. And I realized that a book is a 500-room hotel uh, on uh, 10 floors, and each room has to be connected in a very special way. And it was much it was beyond my skills as a songwriter, although I knew there had to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. Then I realized it's a love story of Linda and I, and it's a poet's journey, and I reflected a generation's angst and journey in to, to find the, the answer within. And then it became clear it was a theme. And so it's the journey. It's the autobiography, but it's a journey of not only me, but a whole generation and a whole angst of the 20th century. So there you are. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, you had no ghostwriter on this. No, I wrote it myself. Uh, I... Uh, I'm, I've been a reader and a, a, a writer of poems all my life. My father read me poetry from a very early age until the age of five. I thought all children were read poetry. Uh, in Scotland and in Ireland, there's a great tradition of literature anyway. Even in the, cheap, the poorest working-class family, you'll see novels on, and, uh, and poetry on the wall, on the walls of the shelves of their bookshelves. And uh, So uh, I knew that my father had read monologues to me, and I knew how to tell a story because I come from a storytelling tradition. Uh, in fact, uh, it's clear to me now that I'm a reincarnated bard uh, of, of a Celtic uh, order uh, who uh, can teach through music. And until the 17th century, there were schools of poetry in Scotland. How can you imagine that? A school of poetry. It's actually 2,000, 3,000-year tradition in the Celtic uh, past that... Uh, Poets were actually trained for 21 years, and there was, they had to study in the first seven years the occasional poems, the songs of birth and death and marriage and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, kingship and uh, friendship and songs of seasonal change and celebrating the spring and the summer and the autumn and the winter. And uh, we are ancient poets. Uh, our job in society... It was to serve society, to uh, be a bridge to the inner world, and the inner songs of the inner world were taught in the next seven years. So the poet's uh, first seven years was, was one of memory, of, of re retention of memory, because there were no books, you see. So we were living books, just like Fahrenheit 451 uh, in uh, uh, that wonderful book, uh, uh, which speaks of human books. So we were human books. And then the next seven years of the Bard uh, were taught the, the more spiritual songs, the, more, the, the, the songs that could lead people within, what we'd call sacred music. The last seven years was actually, I think, a party. Because by the time you'd spent 21 years learning your trade as a poet, you, by then you had an entourage, maybe 50 people, and you'd travel from ca castle and court, uh, from court to castle, from castle to court, and you would actually take over. You'd enter the castle, and you would then be, make songs of the family and sing the songs of the season. And the stories in ancient Ireland are, are, are really funny, because a king or a great lord would not 
totally welcome the poet and his retinue because they, he would eat and drink him out of house and home. And when the poet left with his entourage after a man staying for a few months, of course the family had their great songs. They had songs for their birthday. They were now famous. These songs would now be sang, sung for, for generations and their family would take a place in the history of the nation. This is before television and radio. So when I t picked up the book, I said, I can tell the stories, but got to, there's some tricks here that I've got to learn. And so I had to learn a bit of the... Uh, no, so I didn't want a ghostwriter, but an editor, Mark Booth, did a great job uh, and helped me tremendously. I gather you learned from an early age by watching your father being able to entertain crowds large and small with his readings, what the power of an entertainer, a storyteller, and I gather that appealed to you somehow. Yeah, the power of the word, uh, the orator, rhetoric, the some of the great speakers in uh, British politics are Scots and Irish, so some of the, most of the great actors that we know their voice uh, more than their image even, uh, are Scots and Irish and Welsh. The man in whose name this building is, John F. Kennedy. Yes, a great orator and comes from the tradition of great oratory. Uh, it is something I heard my father do. I could see him placate uh, drunken, uh, boozed couples uh, by the sound of his voice. And you read about this in fairy tales, that the, the magician or the bard spoke and something happened. And so the power of the word is very powerful. Uh, the poetry was always spoken and sung in my, in my family, and uh, I learned a lot from my father, who read Coleridge and snatches of Coleridge and Wordsworth and Yeats and uh, Keats and uh, Wordsworth and the great Scottish Shakespeare uh, Robert Burns. And it was laced always with a very strong dose of socialism. Socialism is not new, as you know. The, 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 work, the rise of the working man from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, in that very early agricultural industrial revolution, uh, the working man was rising up against the past. My father spoke about that a lot. He was a socialist also. And so I was in, in, uh, in fired by the zeal of social change. And the power of the word, how, the power of the word always. Uh, poets are, in some, some countries, are locked up or beheaded because one poet can actually sway a whole nation by pointing out an absurdity. And uh, that's why we're very dangerous. And that's why, in actual fact, it is a danger to be a leading light in poetry. Um, the, the, the musical art is, is slightly different. Uh, you don't have to uh, point to uh, uh, things. You can speak directly through the invisible sound of music. Uh, but also musicians are also feared sometimes, but loved. And uh, I wanted to tell the story in the book of the, of, of the, of the great uh, invasion of popular culture. Out of the late 40s, I read of the early Bohemians and into the 50s, Kerouac, Ginsberg, Burroughs, Ferlinghetti, uh, Gary Schneider, and uh, Kenneth Roxworth. Uh, they were fired uh, by a zeal to bring back into popular culture uh, poetry, uh, the meaningful words of poetry. Well, with it, of course, would come uh, social change, songs of uh, spiritual path, uh, uh, true lyrics uh, to come back to popular song. Because they never, they were once poetry and song and dance were one, were one. Uh, they were separated over the centuries, uh, sometimes on purpose. Uh, separate the poet from the song, then the people might think they're just have, uh, being entertained. Uh, so, uh, marry the poet with the song, and then the, esta the established uh, uh, government will shake in their seats because something might be said, and the people might understand it. 
<laughs> and so poetry is an interesting power uh, that's missing uh, in 1940, and the poets wanted to bring it in. Part of my book is the story of the uh, very important part is the invasion of popular culture in the 60s by the Bohemian Manifesto, which was sleeping, sitting in Bohemian cafes, vibrant in the cafes, but sleeping in the society as a mass. Sleeping in the ma mass was this bohemian invasion about to happen. And Kenneth Roxas and Kant, Burton, Fellingetti and Kerouac and, uh, and Burroughs, uh, they, they were all feeling that it was jazz that was going to be the marriage. Then poetry would marry jazz. And improvisationally, um, Jack Kerouac tried, and he was used to make tap his typewriter to the rhythm of modern jazz. And, but I saw early that it wasn't going to be that. What was going to happen was something more fundamental out of the folk world. And so Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and the Weavers were already go, want, moving through the factory life of America, singing songs of social change. And the young generation in America and in Britain, we were listening. And so Guthrie and uh, Seeger influences Joan Byers and Peter, Paul and Mary and a whole new range and, and, and generation of songwriters come up. And I joined it and I was it. And we were full of zeal and bringing in the Bohemian Manifesto was it. And then the Beatles took up the, the cause and married the meaningful lyrics to the popular song. And that led to the extraordinary flower of meditation. But before we speak of that, so now the revolution w was going to happen because poetry was now remarried, in my opinion, with, with, uh, with popular song. After this short break, why Donovan left it all behind the height of his career. Now back to my 2007 interview with hurdy-gurdy man Donovan. Eric Burden had once told me that how, how deeply he was influenced and others like him were influenced by World War II, the, the, the grim, gray drabness that, that resulted from what, where they grew up. Was that an influence on you as well? Yes, of course. Uh, the gray, grim uh, streets of Newcastle and Manchester and Liverpool and Glasgow, uh, the, the, many of the uh, 60s uh, singer-songwriters and bands came from these uh, very strong industrial cities. But it's not all doomed and gloom. Uh, what it was was the, these were the vibrant industrial cities that, that actually had so much money and drew from around the world so much different cultures. And into Liverpool and Glasgow came the ships. And into Liverpool and Glasgow came the Irish. And when, with the Irish comes the word and the song. And so Lennon and McCartney are Irish names. And so are Oasis, the Gallagher brothers. And so are the Happy Mondays, the Ryder brothers. And, uh, and so am I, of Irish and Scottish descent. And into Newcastle uh, also came extraordinary influences. But out of those rough and tumble days of the post-war Britain, uh, we didn't have much, uh, the working class. Therefore, there was only one way, and that was up and out. And, but we, I, I value that working-class background and all of those shipbuilding towns uh, around Britain because we had so much going for us. It was so much. It was where it was where the birth of, of, a, of, of a new generation of uh, poets would begin. Near the end of the book, I think maybe at the end of the book, you mentioned that by 1970 you realized you'd had over a dozen hit singles. You'd written over 200 songs, I think you said, that other well-known recording artists had recorded. You had all this. After, at only age 24, what had changed by that point that made you want to get out? Um, 
Boredom. Uh, I asked my mentor, an artist mentor, David Wynn, a great sculptor, uh, when I was 20, uh, what should I look out for in early fame? And he said immediately, mediocrity. And therefore I set my goals so high that having achieved everything, uh, the Bohemian Manifesto was reintroduced to popular culture through efforts of my own and, and my, uh, my companions. Uh, what else was there to do? Um, I also had lost heart because I'd lost my muse, Linda. And really, the, the goddess is the, the poet's muse, uh, and my goddess, Linda, wasn't with me. Uh, it had been achieved, that everything was achieved. It actually had become now dangerous, like I told you early, to actually be a figure uh, of uh, social change. And I'd had enough in that respect, and I decided I'd go and travel the world uh, and in a yacht. <laughs> uh, and uh, I got to Japan, and then it came clear. I, I had been done. It was over. I looked in a great mirror in a great hotel in t Tokyo and saw look, who was looking back wasn't me anymore. It was the figure that I had become I needed to return to myself. So, what do I do? Gypsy Dave, my road buddy, was with me. He laughed. And he looked at me and said, Well, that's it, Don, I suppose. That's it's over. I said, Yeah, it's been great. Um, and I'm going back. But I was brokenhearted, and the journal tells it. Uh, for what? What was I brokenhearted for? What was I missing? I'd done it all. How can you be so uh, lost at, this, at, at 24, having achieved so much? Well... I was broken down, but I didn't take a breakdown in the sense of drugs or heroin or extreme alcoholism. It was just, it was over. Uh, I was like a snake shedding a skin, and a new snake was going to appear, but I didn't know when, and I returned to England. Uh, when I stepped onto that BOAC jet, I was touching British soil, and I was out on a year's tax exile, which I was set to earn more money than any solo artist had done ever in the 20th century in this tax exile. It took six months to set up. You, what it is is you don't touch British soil for one year and uh, therefore you don't pay any tax. By the way, it wasn't the money I was lo ever looking for. It was just that when 98% of your money goes to military-industrial complex, uh, we musicians disagreed. So the tax exile wasn't to make more, keep more money. It was so it wouldn't be spent on the wrong things. Money was the last thought. But when I returned to England, that was it. Managers and agents and lawyers were aghast. Uh, fans were disappointed I'd cancelled tours and many things like this. But I walked into my little cottage, which I'd rented, as the book says, to a couple of American friends, and slept in the woods. The girls were very surprised to see me returned. And they, one of them was off at a party at Clapton's house, and uh, one of those long weekend parties... And she returned, uh, this other American friend who was r renting my cottage. Meanwhile, I was in an altered state. As I say, an old skin was being shed. Uh, I would tell uh, the, the other American gal who was in the cottage, uh, if anybody calls and asks for Donovan, tell him I'm not who I used to be. I'm someone else now. And so it was fleeing, but it was also returning. And... Third day, up the drive came the other American gal from the party in Clapton's, and she was uh, in a little Carmen Ghia car. Two doors crashed, so I knew she was with someone. I was upstairs, still in an altered day's state, but enjoying my new, my new freedom in a way. Mm. Uh, what freedom, I was saying. I'm dying, uh, but somebody new emerging. 
And uh, two girls came out of the car, the American girl first, and breezed into the cottage, and behind her another girl, and the American lady turned round and said, I believe you two know each other. And Linda walked in to the cottage, and she had just returned from America with a very similar uh, feeling of return, and that's it, it's over, it's done, with her little boy Julian, who she was bringing home to England. Ah, I said, and Linda said, ah. We were both surprised to see each other and very pleased. And then the 60s ended on a high note for me, and a whole new generation of children would be born uh, in the 70s, uh, and ours included. And so the 70s began for me. And I closed the book at the 69, 70, and not because I didn't go on, but I did go on, and I had um, about seven inches of manuscript. <laughs> uh, and uh, one publisher said, uh, we don't want war and peace. Uh, can we have something slim, smaller? And I said, well, I'll take it to the, the end of the 60s uh, and the beginning of the 70s. And so that's where it is. Um, but at the end note in my new paperback, the paperback is out this January, of course, 2007. The end note is uh, Linda and I did, did return to each other. We had met in 65, as the book says. Linda is my sunshine supergirl. We did split for a period which saved our relationship. No relationships in the music and entertainment world in the 60s survived the, the super fame that we all experienced. Ours did. Um, uh, the decades would pass. We would continue into the spiritual path uh, to... To, to continue to practice what we had discovered. Linda had been initiated by, by Paul, Paul uh, Horn uh, into TM. I had been initiated by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. The Beatles and I had brought back to the West a technique to, to, uh, as a super antidote for the overuse of drugs that was beginning. Dealers were becoming prevalent on the streets. It was never the naive joint anymore. It was now a very heavy scene. And we had brought to uh, the West the technique of TM. And now TM has moved from strength to strength. And was it last year or the year before? We were invited to the Maharishi University of uh, Management, uh, back into the fold after having gone from some, so many years on our own working away, and we were honoured by Maharishi for our work in peace in bringing brotherhood and peace to the world. Uh, that led to meeting David Lynch and being introduced to his foundation. And now Linda and I and David Lynch uh, move ahead, as the end note of my book says, into an extraordinary application in the 21st century of the best of the 60s. And the best of the 60s was the rediscover of meditation for the West. Now young students all over the country are benefiting uh, by uh, being able to dive within. Uh, it's not a religion, it's a technique that is the birthright of humanity. And we always knew it, me, George, Linda, Paul, John, when we were reading the books when we were young teenagers, saying there's got to be an answer to the suffering of the world. Not, a, not an answer of uh, shave your head and, 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 and go and live in a cave in the, the mountains, but actually bring back some way of understanding the brotherhood and the unity without it sounding naive and, uh, and uh, uh, altruistic. It's a practical technique. And so the book, this book closes uh, with that end note that uh, we continue now. I have new music coming myself, and uh, Linda and I are working on some extraordinary projects that, uh, with young people and our, own, and, and our own children. Donovan is 75 now.
He lives in County Cork, Ireland. And you can find easy Amazon links to Donovan's book and his music at our website, HeardEverything.com. Oh, and while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1993 interview with another folk legend, Pete Seeger. I would like to see people singing even when they're not with friends they know. I'd like to see people singing while they're waiting for the bus. (laughs) Just us, waiting for the bus, just us. Waiting for the bus, just us. Waiting for the bus, Mr. Driver, won't you please come soon? And my conversation with Graham Nash. His greatest dream was to attend the, the soccer cup oh, final at mm-hmm. Wembley Stadium. He never made it. So when Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played Wembley Stadium at a concert, the first thing I did was go down onto the field and start kicking a ball around for my dad. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, Spotify, and many others. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, another major figure who has made poetry a part of her life and a part of ours as a result, my 2003 interview with best-selling novelist and poet Alice Walker. With poetry, the poem dictates everything. They're like people. Some people are very tall and skinny. Some people are short and, and plump. You know, poems are like that. They can be long or short, but they totally dictate how they will be and nothing is wasted. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.